This morning, we're diving right back into our message series on the parables of Jesus. We've been in this for seven or eight weeks now. Lord willing, we're going to wrap this series up uh, next Sunday, so you don't want to miss that. Now, if you haven't been around the last few weeks, um, parables are just, they're earthly stories that have a deeper spiritual meaning. That's what a, that's what a parable is. And one of the things that we've discovered in this series at, is that Jesus is a master storyteller, is he not? I mean, he's, Jesus is just like, he's a heart surgeon with these parables. Man, he just kind of cuts right to the core of our spirit and our hearts with these little stories. And today we're gonna unpack one of the shortest parables that Jesus ever told. Actually, there, there are actually two short parables that he um, kind of interweaves together, twin parables, if you will. The first parable is commonly known as the parable of the hidden treasure. And then the second one that Jesus connects to it is um, oftentimes called the, the parable of the pearl of great value. So here's the question that we'll try to answer together as we walk through these parables this morning. And I think it's a question that's really important uh, for each of us to ask ourselves. And the question is this, what do you value most in your life? What, what do you actually value the most in your life? So if you were to just kind of do an inventory of your life, what brings you the most joy, like day to day, just as you go throughout your life and your year and your weeks? What brings you the most joy? Uh, where, are you, where are you finding your um, security in life? What's the one thing that you just would not want to live without? So let's just say, God forbid, you know, your, your house catches on fire in the middle of the night. You got three minutes to get out. What's the one thing, what's the one thing that you're grabbing on your way out of the house? So what do, you, what do you value most in your life? Now, for some of you, I would imagine you're probably thinking of a relationship. It could be a, a spouse or a kid or a boyfriend, girlfriend, something like that. Others of you maybe just thought of something. You've got a really special car that you love that you've been rebuilding, or you got a, a dream home that you finally got into a couple years ago. Or for, me, for you, maybe it's a, I don't know, a bank account or some kind of retirement investment fund. Maybe it's your, your job, your career. Maybe it's your reputation in the community. And Jesus, with these two tiny little parables, is gonna begin to peel back the layers of our hearts this morning in order to expose what we actually treasure most in this life. So here's the, here's the plan for the morning. We're gonna, we're gonna read these parables together. We're gonna discuss them. I'm gonna give you one kind of primary idea and then a few applications, and then, then we'll be done. We'll come, we'll come up here, we'll celebrate what Jesus has done for us, and we'll, we'll sing. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that. Open it up, turn it on, and head for Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. It also will be on the screens for you sinners that didn't bring a Bible. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. This is, of course, Matthew, one of the disciples of Jesus. He's recording the teaching of Jesus. And uh, this is Jesus speaking here, beginning in verse 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, so now Jesus is going into that kind of second connected parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. So just a little historical context and then we'll jump into the meat of what Jesus just said. When we think of kind of hidden treasures, uh, if you're anything like me, I kind of picture pirate movies or really expensive like deep sea expeditions to shipwrecks. 
uh, we, don't, we don't typically think that it's something that's going to happen to us in our, in our lives, right? Like most of us don't think that we're actually going to discover some hidden treasure or something like that, unless you're that one like semi-creepy dude at the beach that's got the metal detector. He's kind of going around with a huge earphones on. He's usually wearing a Speedo for some reason. I'm not sure why that is, um, but I don't know. Maybe that's just the beaches that I go to. There's always that one creeper there. Um, bunch of weird people out there. Now, if that... If that's what you do, like doing when you go to the beach, no judgment here from me, unless you're wearing a Speedo, in which case I am judging you in my head harshly. Most of us don't think that's going to happen to us. Like no, most of us are like, man, I'm not, we don't think we're going to stumble into a treasure one day. But in Jesus's day, this actually wasn't an uncommon occurrence. Because you have to remember, in Jesus's day, they didn't have banks like we have banks today. And so when somebody had some extra money that they wanted to save, what do you think they did with it? They put it in a box, and they buried it somewhere. They hid it in a cave somewhere, right? Now, with all of the war and strife that was going on at this time, this period of history, oftentimes people had to flee with little notice as an army would come and invade. And then oftentimes these people would die in the war. Or maybe they would have to resettle in some other country. And so it wasn't uncommon to find a hidden treasure or a treasure that was hidden in a cave or something like that. And so I think those who are listening to Jesus tell this parable, when he gets to this part about the pearl and the treasure, they're, they're probably starting to lean in a little bit. Like, hmm, this, this is something that could actually happen to me. Like, I could actually find a pearl like this, or I could actually find a hidden treasure. Now, even though it's something that I think in our day is probably less likely, likely to happen, I mean, we're probably not likely to stumble upon on the Blue Ridge Parkway a treasure that was buried a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, from a, a pirate like Blackbeard or a king or something like that. But it's still, it's still a dream for most of us, isn't it? I mean, especially when we're little kids. I was, um, I was tucking my seven-year-old uh, Judah into bed uh, recently, a couple of weeks ago, and Judah is really into pirates and treasures and all that kind of thing. Most, I guess, seven-year-old boys are. And, um, and so he looked up at me as I was tucking him in and he, and he asked me the question. He said, Daddy, are, are, there, are there still treasures out there? Are there still treasures? And I have no idea, but I said, uh, yeah, absolutely, son. I bet, there, I, bet there, I bet there are some treasures out there. And so I did what all good parents do. I went to Dr. Google and I pulled up some pictures of treasures that people had actually found. And it was, it was fascinating and Judah was fascinated as we just kind of looked through the pictures of all these gold coins and jewels and crowns, and um, it was pretty awesome. And I actually came across a true story of a farmer in England who in the 1990s, dude's name is Peter Watling. You can actually look him up. But this, uh, this farmer in England actually lost a hammer in his field. Okay, I don't know what he's doing in the field of hammer, but he lost his hammer in the field. And so he actually hired one of his friends who had a metal detector to come look for his hammer. Now, I, I don't know if they ever actually found the hammer, but what they did find was this massive treasure dating back to the Roman Empire that was worth millions and millions of dollars. So in, in this treasure, there were almost 15,000 gold and silver coins. There were crowns, jewels, cups, all that kind of stuff. In fact, I got a picture of just a small portion of the treasure they found. That sits in a museum in England right now. And again, that is a small portion of the treasure that this farmer found. Can, can you just imagine the excitement of finding something like that in a field? I mean, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to contain it, man. It would be so incredibly exciting. Well, Jesus says there's this guy in a field, 
We, we don't know why this guy is in this field. Some scholars suggest that he probably was a hired hand to, to farm the field, and so he was, he was there for that. Uh, who knows? He could have been there picking blueberries or hiding a body. We're just not really sure why he was there, but he's in the field nonetheless, and he stumbles upon a hidden treasure. And so we can just imagine this guy, and he's maybe, for whatever reason, he's kind of digging around, and maybe he notices something sticking out of the dirt that's a little bit out of the ordinary. It's like, man, this kind of looks like the corner of a box or something. And so he starts digging a little bit deeper. And sure enough, and then there's this wooden chest and he, he pulls it out and maybe it's got a lock on it. And so he's looking around, he grabs a, a rock and he busts open the lock. And man, as soon as he opens up that thing, he's just almost blinded, right? By the glimmering gold and the diamonds and the rubies. It's just breathtaking. It's amazing. He's never seen a treasure like this. It's incredible. And so what does he do? Now, remember, he, he doesn't own the field. We know this guy's not a wealthy guy because Jesus says he has to actually go back and sell everything that he owns to just buy this piddly little field. So this poor guy who just found what appears to be the most valuable treasure ever found, he kind of looks around. He's just like making sure nobody, nobody saw him pull it out. And then Jesus says he actually, he covers it back up. And then he sprints home and he sells everything that he owns so he can go and buy this little field. Now you just imagine being this guy's wife or kids, right? comes busting through the doors one day. Honey, we're selling the house today. It's going on the market today. The home, or the, home the cars, everything. Kids, give me your iPads. Give, give me the iPhones. We're selling it. Get the big screen on Craigslist right now. He's like going over to his neighbor's house. Like, hey, you want my lawnmower? Give me 25 bucks. He's just, he's just going wild selling everything that he owns. Now, people would have thought, this man has gone insane. Like, what, what, is, what is wrong with this guy? Maybe he went to the, the pub a little early in the day. Man, this guy's lost his mind. But this guy doesn't care at all, does he? He doesn't care what anybody thinks about him because he found a treasure of unspeakable value. And Jesus is saying in this parable, this is what my kingdom is like. This is what it's like to find me. This is what it's like to know me, to live in my kingdom. See, once you, once you get a small little glimpse of how valuable my kingdom is, nothing else in this world will compare. Once you get a glimpse of who I am and what my kingdom is like and how big and how beautiful and how satisfying it is, you'd be willing to sell everything. You'd be willing to abandon everything to get it. Now Jesus then moves on and he begins to tell a very similar uh, parable. And he says, hey, my kingdom is also like a merchant in search of great pearls. Now unlike the first guy who didn't have any money, a pearl merchant would have been a very wealthy person merchant of pearls would have been a business owner. He would have been a CEO. This guy would have been uh, traveling around internationally. He would have been selling things. He would have been making lots of money. But this merchant, uh, who had seen many pearls in his lifetime, stumbles upon a pearl the likes of which he had never seen before. This pearl is exquisite. Now, you have to understand how rare pearls were in this day, right? Because they didn't have all the deep sea like diving technology that we have today. So pearls were exceedingly rare and precious. In fact, just to give you an idea, historians tell us that Cleopatra, that famous Egyptian queen, she owned a pearl that in today's market would be valued at between four and five billion dollars, right? So this merchant comes across a pearl that put Cleopatra's four billion dollar pearl to shame, right? It's just, it's an incredible pearl. And he sees it, and because he's an expert in pearls, 
he instantaneously knows that it's more valuable than anything he's ever laid his eyes on. And so this merchant does the same thing that the poor guy in the field did. He goes home and he begins to sell everything that he has. He sells all of his businesses. He goes and sells all of his vacation beach homes on the coast. He sells his ships. He sells his collection of pearls. He cashes it all in so that he can go and buy this one single pearl of great value because he knew, he knew that he would never have to work another day in his life if he could obtain this one unmatched pearl of great value. And Jesus tells these stories and then he looks at his disciples and he says, that treasure, that pearl, that's my kingdom. That's what it's like to find me. And so here's the big idea that I think that Jesus is swinging out in these two parables. This is one singular truth. And listen, it's, it's so simple, this truth is, and yet it's so massive that it's, that it's sweeping, it's life-altering in its implications for the people that get it. And yet, this one truth is so radical that even the people that get this truth oftentimes will walk away from Jesus because it is so radical. So here's, here's kind of the big idea of the whole shebang this morning. If you're a note-taker, write this down. I'll put it on the screens for you. Jesus' kingdom is more valuable than everything. That's kind of the one big idea that Jesus is hammering home this morning. Now, there are potentially dozens of applications of this one revolutionary truth, but we're just gonna dial in, we're gonna focus in on a, a few of them this morning. So, kingdom implications, I'll give you a few and then we'll be done. Number one, first implication of his kingdom is that the kingdom of Jesus is hidden. Right, as a pearl is hidden under the depths of the ocean, as a beautiful treasure is hidden in a dark cave or underground, so God's kingdom is hidden in this world for a time, for a season. And that's why so many people miss it, right? We, 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 we miss it so often, and we don't, we don't miss it because uh, God is sitting in heaven and he's kind of like this evil trickster who's like, hey, come follow me, and then he goes and hides in the bushes, like, ha, you can't, you can't find me. No, we, we miss the kingdom that is right in front of our very eyes oftentimes because we are blinded by our own sin. And if I can be frank this morning, our sin makes us dumb. Not only are we blinded by our own sin, but the scriptures teach us that we actually have an enemy who actively seeks to keep those of us who are not in the kingdom of Jesus blind to the one thing that would actually give us life. So I wanna show you a couple passages. Don't turn there. These will be on the screens for you. But there's this uh, fascinating passage in the Old Testament book of Zephaniah and in Zephaniah, um, God is dealing with his, with his people who have turned their backs on God and they've rejected him again and again and again. He's pursued them with his love and his grace and his mercy and they've continued to just turn their backs on him and these people are now embracing evil and violence and idol worship. And so this is what the Lord says to these people. He says, I, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. So God connects our spiritual blindness to our own sin. We are blinded by sin. And then the great apostle writes this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, the God of this age has, has blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul says, listen, we, we have an enemy that actively seeks to veil the kingdom of Jesus so that we would miss it. 
God's kingdom is hidden both by our own sin and by a cunning enemy who came to steal, kill, and destroy. And I say all of that to say this. If, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and so none of this Jesus stuff that we've been singing about or we've been praying about or that I'm teaching about right now, if none of this makes sense to you, if none of this is compelling to you, if even as I talk about this, this seems like foolishness to you, here's, here's my one challenge for you this morning. My one challenge for you would just to be pray a very simple prayer like this. It could either be right now in the middle of the service, it could be when you go home, but just pray something like this. God, if you are real, God, if you are, if you are really real, if anything that this weird guy on the stage is saying is actually true, God, I don't, I don't want to miss it. So if you're really out there and you're really real, God, will you just, will you remove the veil and just allow me to see you for who you are? Will you show me who you are, God? And I think God honors very sincere prayers from the heart like that. So if that's you and you're not a Christian, and again, I'm glad that you're here if you're not a Christian, that would be my one encouragement to you this morning, that you would pray that prayer. Listen, you've got, you've got nothing to lose by praying a prayer like that, and you have potentially everything in the world to gain. I'd also say to those of us who are continually praying for loved ones, people that we know and love, family members, friends, neighbors, who are currently outside the kingdom of Jesus, man, this is a reminder for us to keep praying. It's kind of like the parable of the persistent widow that we looked at two weeks ago, right? We keep coming to the great king on their behalf. We keep, we keep seeking, we keep asking, we keep knocking. We never grow weary because it's actually God's spirit is, is the one who unveils our eyes to see spiritual truth. I mean, think about it. How, how many of us in the room right now this morning would say that at one time this stuff seemed like foolishness to us? One time in our lives, man, this just seemed like a fairy tale. It seemed goofy. It seemed unbelievable. But now... Man, this is our life. Like we live for this king. We live for this better kingdom now because God in his love and his grace, he lifted the veil so that we might see who he actually is. And so as Christians, as believers, we pray that he would do the same for many more people. All right, kingdom implication number two. His kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, is not only hidden, it's actually for everyone. It's for everybody. And notice in the, the first parable that Jesus tells, the guy who finds the treasure is, is not a man of wealth. In fact, scholars believe he likely was a hired hand working in the field. And so Jesus tells us that this fellow has to go and sell everything that he owns just to buy a little field. So maybe in our terms, in our day, we would say, man, this, maybe this brother would, would have been on welfare in our society. Maybe this brother would be uh, living in Section 8 housing Right, just struggling to keep the lights on, struggling to keep food on the table for his kids. Now, some of you can relate to this brother, especially after he just bought all those Christmas presents last week, right? This guy is, is not a man of wealth, and yet he sees Jesus' kingdom. He's attracted. He leaves it all behind to find and follow Jesus. That's one guy. And then the second parable, we got this merchant of pearls. This guy is not a poor guy. This guy would have been a really wealthy CEO, lots of money, lots of stuff, big vacations, nice cars. And Jesus says, both of these guys, when they find me, they leave everything to get my kingdom. See, G Jesus, he was always obliterating people's view of who God is and what his kingdom looks like. Because you gotta remember, Jesus, who did he hang out with? Jesus is always hanging out with like the degenerates of society, isn't he? Like tax collectors, 
sinners, drunks, prostitutes, Samaritans, who were considered half-breed sellouts to the Jewish people. What Jesus was communicating by the way that he lived is that and by smashing all of these like religious and cultural boundaries, what he was saying is, listen, your view of God's kingdom is too narrow. It's too narrow because you, you think that God's kingdom is restricted to religious people. You think that God's kingdom is restricted to moral people, to people that have it all figured out and have it all together. Maybe some people who have some money, maybe people without a messy past. But I'm telling you, I'm kicking open, I'm swinging open the gates of God's kingdom because my kingdom is for the broken. My kingdom is for the poor. My kingdom is for the marginalized. My, pe- my kingdom is for people who have a really messy past. My kingdom is for anyone who sees the value of my kingdom and sees me as their highest treasure. I welcome them all into my kingdom. But Jesus is saying, listen, I'm, I'm the cure. I'm the cure for the poor guy who finds a treasure in the field. I'm also the cure for the rich guy, the merchant of pearls. I'm the cure for everybody. I'm the one that you seek. I am the highest treasure. And so practically what that means for us, church, is that we spend our lives loving God and loving people and inviting others to join us in the great kingdom of Jesus, to join us at the great king's table of feast or feast table as we talked about in the parable last week. Jesus' kingdom is for everyone. It's for the rich. It's for the poor. It's for white people, black people, Hispanic people, Asian people, Asian, uh, male, female, churchy people, big sinners, messy people. Jesus says, listen, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Does anybody in the room need rest this morning? Jesus says, come to me. This is where you're going to find rest. This is where you're going to find hope. This is where you're going to find happiness. He's for everyone. He's for anyone who will call upon his name. Kingdom implication number three is this. Joy is found in trading everything to get the greatest thing. Joy is found in trading everything to get the greatest thing. Go back to verse 44, the first parable that Jesus tells. It says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Watch this. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. So Jesus says, when this guy sees the treasure, he is filled with joy before he sells all his stuff. Notice, Jesus doesn't say the guy goes home and it's sadness and tears, weeping. He sells all of his stuff. And then when he finally gets the treasure, then he gets joy. No, he gets joy on the front end. He gets joy while he's losing everything that is valuable to him. And here's what Jesus is getting at. To gain the greatest thing, you've got to be willing to lose everything. To gain the greatest thing, you've got to be willing to lose everything. See, the one thing that you fear losing most, whatever that functional idol is for you, and listen, a functional idol is just anything in your life that should be secondary in your life that you elevate to a primary position in your life. It could be something good. It could be a family member. It could be a relationship. It could be anything. And I don't know what that functional idol is for you, but I know that we all battle them in our hearts. Whatever that one thing is for you, the thing that you fear losing most, the thing that you fear letting go of most, Jesus is saying is paradoxically the one thing that is gonna set you free and give you joy in my kingdom. I remember uh, Cheryl and I, right before we started dating, um, we were going into our our senior year of college. And I'm just telling you, I was looking for a wife. 
okay, at that period in my life. I was, uh, I was getting ready to head off to grad school, and then I was moving overseas, and I didn't want to do any of that alone. And so um, I started my senior year, and I was, I was talking to, to, to two girls, but I had my heart set on another girl, on a, on a third girl. And I can feel some of your judgmental glares right now. Just back up. <laughs> Don't judge me. They didn't know about each other, so it didn't count. <laughs> but I had, I was talking to two girls, but I, I really had my eye on another girl because um, in my junior year, I'd seen this beautiful blonde-headed swimmer um, on campus. And I, I can remember just seeing her from across campus one day with like the sun glimmering off her hair. And I remember just thinking, my God, I need to marry that woman because it's going to be good for me, it's going to be good for her, and good for your kingdom, God. So please, <laughs> please, please make it happen, God. And, um, and nothing happened for a year, man. We, um, we had mutual friends, and I tried to get them to set us up, and yeah, we'll set you up, and nothing ever happened. And, uh, and so I had a couple of options that I was working with, but I wasn't sold on either of them. And, uh, and then one glorious day, everything changed. Everything changed, man. I... Cheryl walked into the gym that I was working out in, and uh, we were in the gym by ourselves because we were there before all the students came. I was uh, one of the managers at our campus gym, and she was on a swimming scholarship. So we were in there, and I just happened to be doing bicep curls, okay, and a cutoff, and a cutoff shirt. And, um, or maybe I started doing them when she walked in. I can't remember. But... Um, so I'm doing my bicep curls, and she's over there pretending like I don't see her. Um, and I kid you not, she walks up to me, and she touches my arm, and she says, it looks like it's going to pop. <laughs> Best pickup line ever. I'm like, baby, you have no idea. 304, 305, 306, right? The rest is history. We're married. We got three kids now, right? Uh, but here, here's the deal. When Cheryl became my girl, I dropped those other girls like a bad habit, right? They'd call be like, who are you? I think you have the wrong number. <laughs> Why? Because I had found a treasure and everything else in the world paled in comparison to that treasure. And I was willing to trade everything in my life, every opportunity that I would ever have with any other woman for a chance to be with her. And I'm telling you, on our wedding day, when we stood in front of each other, I was not thinking in my mind, man, I'm giving up Bree, and I'm giving up Jen, and I'm giving up Susan, and man, Cheryl, you better make this worth my while. No, I, I gave up everything in joy because she was everything to me. I wasn't counting my losses. I wasn't, I wasn't tallying up what I'm giving up because I was the luckiest man in the world. I found my treasure, and I'm never going back. Now, that's a silly little illustration, but in some sense, I think that is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, everything for me in my kingdom, that's a happy trade. You exchange everything in your life for me in my kingdom, that's a good trade. That's a wise trade. Thomas Chalmers, uh, one of the founders of the Free Church of Scotland, uh, he once preached a sermon entitled, The Expulsive Power of of a new affection. I think they were smarter back then because my title is like two words, but there's the explosive power of a new affection. And in that sermon, Chalmers said this. This will be on the screens for you. He said, the gospel of Jesus Christ is expulsive in its power. 
it expels lesser treasures. It awakens a new appetite, a new affection, a new sense, a new taste, a new longing in the heart that nothing but Jesus can fill. And that longing and that delight in Christ expels every rival. Now this is what led, this truth is what led the Apostle Paul to write in Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Now if you know anything about the Apostle's life, he had a lot to lose, didn't he? Guy was highly educated, the guy was highly respected, the guy would have been wealthy, people knew who he was when he walked down the street, people were intimidated of him, and he says, I will leave it all, I count it as rubbish to follow Christ. In verse eight he says, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, he found his treasure. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as, as rubbish. It's like all my, all my bank accounts over here, all my wealth, all my pride, all my reputation, all my influence, all my power, all of it is garbage to me in comparison that I might gain that treasure of knowing Jesus Christ. Friend, joy is found in trading everything to get the greatest thing. And that leads us right into truth number four. Number four, his kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus is all or nothing. Now this is the point where a lot of people get uncomfortable. And this is the point in the gospel that a lot of people actually turn their backs and walk away from Jesus. Because Jesus is saying, you've got to be willing to go all in. You've got to be willing to trade everything to obtain me and my kingdom. Now, in our culture, we don't like stuff like that, do we? In our culture, man, we don't, we don't like black and white truths. We don't like hard lines in the sand. It makes us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? makes us a little bit uneasy in our culture. In our culture, we like to live in the gray. We like to take what we like and leave what we don't like. We even do this with the Bible, don't we? I don't really like that. I don't really like that part, so I'm just gonna pretend like it's not there. And I don't like that part, and I'm just gonna pretend like it was only relevant to that culture. It no longer applies to us because we live in a different culture. But I, but I like this other part, this other part over here, man. It makes me feel really warm and fuzzy inside, and so I'm gonna put that on Facebook and my Instagram so people know how spiritual I really am. I like this part, so I'm gonna take this. I don't like this part, so I'm not gonna take it. We like our spiritual life like we like a buffet. I have some of that nice ham over there. I have some of that apple pie over there. But Aunt Mabel's green bean casserole, oh, hard pass, hard pass. And Jesus is letting us know that his kingdom is not a buffet. It is all or nothing. That's why Jesus says in Luke 14, if you don't give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciples. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That's not a whole lot of wiggle room there. That's pretty black and white. If you don't give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. There's no middle ground, friend, not if you believe the words of Jesus himself. He isn't leaving us the option to just tack him onto our lives. He is not an add-on Jesus. Now, if you're like me and you don't like shopping in crowds and lines and traffic and all that kind of stuff, I do most of my shopping on Amazon, some of these other online places. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but when you order something on Amazon, uh, they give you an add-on option at the end, right? So it says, people who buy this item typically buy these 14 items. Right? It's, called, it's called an add-on item. And Jesus is not an add-on savior. 
We don't just get to add him on to all of the other idols that we're chasing in this life. This is, listen, this is why it's so dangerous when we say things or we think things in our mind, like, God, I will obey you, or Jesus, I will follow you if fill in the blank. Or God, I will obey you, Jesus, I will follow you when fill in the blank for whatever it is for you. When you get my career off the ground, when I have more money in the bank, if you let me marry that woman, if you let me date that boy, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. That is so toxic and that is so dangerous because when we're doing that, what we're doing is we're attempting to make God our cosmic butler. God, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. And can I just say to you this morning, church family, God is no man's butler. He is no man's butler. He is the king of the universe. And his kingdom, the great treasure, the great pearl is an all or nothing proposition, see? It reminds me of uh, the famous uh, quote from C.S. Lewis, and I'll put this on the screens for you too. Lewis wrote this. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but actually too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Friend, Jesus is inviting you to give up your small ambitions and your flimsy dreams in this life in exchange for the greatest treasure the world has ever known in himself. And that is a very good trade. All right, last kingdom implication, and we'll be done. Number five, treasure finders become treasure guides. Okay, so, so what, what are we to do when we, when we find this great treasure or this great pearl? What do we do when we discover these things? Shall, shall, we, shall we hoard it for ourselves? Well, the answer to that, of course, is no. I, I love the way one pastor put it. He said, Hoarded joy rots. I love that. Hoarded joy rots. And that's why Jesus tells us over and over again in the scriptures that those of us who have been redeemed are sent out as messengers of redemption to the world. That's why he tells his disciples in Matthew 28, I want you to go to all the world and I want you to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those of us who receive grace become conduits of grace to the world around us. Right? We're like the beggars who are telling the other beggars where we found the bread, or in this case, telling others where we found the great treasure or the great pearl. There's this really obscure story in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings that I came across recently, and I think it illustrates this last point perfectly. And so I want to I read it to you, and then we'll, we'll land the plane this morning. We'll come to the tables and we'll celebrate. But in, in this story, in 2 Kings, there's a famine going on in Israel. So people are hungry, people are starving to death, people are dying. Not only that, there are armies that are coming. They're encamped right outside of the city gates. They're getting ready to come in and overthrow Israel and enslave them. So this is, this is a really bleak picture that the writer of 2 Kings paints at this time in history. And he tells us that there are actually there are four lepers in this story. And these four lepers are standing outside of the city gate and they begin to have a conversation with one another. And so they say to each other, hey, listen, if we, if we stay outside this gate, because lepers were to be kept outside of uh, crowds, they thought it was communicable disease and so they had to stay outside the city gate. So they're like, man, if we stay here, we're gonna die. Right? And there's no food out here. 
Armies are coming, we're gonna die. If we go inside the city gates where we're not supposed to be, there's no food in there either. We couldn't even rob anybody if we wanted to. So if we go inside the gates, we're gonna die as well. So, so what if we just walk over to the enemy army encampment? And if they kill us, then we were dead men anyway, right? But if they feed us, then we'll live. So we got nothing to lose. So it's kind of the context of this story. So this will be on the screens for you. I just wanna share this with you. It says this. So they, the, the four lepers, the invading enemy army. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. And so they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers, imagine being these guys, man. Talk about a lucky day, huh? When these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and they ate and they drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and they went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the whole king's household. So these lepers find this treasure in an enemy encampment because God had chased them all away. And at first, they're like, hey, boys, this is our lucky day. Let's, let's hide all this stuff. But as they're hiding it, they realize, man, we can't, we can't hoard all this stuff. God has has shined his light on us. He has smiled on us today. This is, this is a day of good news, man. We, we've got to share this with everybody. And so they run back to the city gates, man, and they share the good news of this treasure with everybody in the city. Now, this is a great picture of what our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus, should look like. We have found a treasure of incomprehensible worth, and we have done nothing to earn it. This is a day of good news. Let us tell the whole world. And this is why we, as a church, this is why we send mission teams to the Czech Republic and to Turkey and to Egypt and to refugees in Georgia. And this is why we're dreaming of planting churches in Western North Carolina and beyond. And this is why we plead with you, our faith family, to invite your neighbors and your friends to this place or to special events like Christmas Eve because we are convinced that treasure finders are sent out to become treasure guides so that others might also experience the love and the joy that we found in the treasure that is Jesus. As we close this morning, let me invite you just to bow your heads for a minute. We're going to consider a couple of things. And then we're going to come to the tables and celebrate what Jesus has done. A few weeks ago, we took, um, we took our kids to see the new Lion King movie in the theater. And the plot line of that movie, if you haven't seen it yet, the plot line is this. When the true king is in place, when the true king is in place, life is abundant and joy abounds. But when the false king is in place, there's hunger, and there's confusion, and there's death, and there's desperation. And so my question for you 
this morning, church family, is a very simple one. Here's the question. Is the right king in place in your life today? Is the right king in place in your life? Are you living for the right kingdom? Are you treasuring the right thing? Non-Christian in the room, again, I'm so happy and thankful that you're here, but I'm just telling you from a place of love that the treasure that you seek is found only in Jesus. And if that's where you're at, you need to understand there's only one condition for getting the kingdom of Jesus, and it's this. You have to desire it above all else. You've got to want it more than you want anything else. And understand this. Jesus treasured you. Did he not? He treasured you. He came, he came for you. He traded everything in his kingdom to come into this busted up, nasty world and this mess that we've made here. And he came here, traded it all to rescue you. <laughs> Friend, you, you give up nothing when you give up everything to get him in his kingdom. You give up nothing when you give up everything to get him. Now, if that's you, friend, if that's you, if you're hearing this, and you're like, man, that's, yeah. I've been living for the wrong king, and I've been living for the wrong kingdom, and I want, I want that treasure that Jesus was talking about. I want that pearl. I want a dynamic relationship with the living God of this universe through Jesus Christ. I want it. I want it. And if that is your heart's desire right now, let me just encourage you in your own words to pray as we pray in a minute, or you can pray right now in the silence of your own heart and mind and just cry out to God and say, God, I give myself to you. I'm tired of living my life my way. God, help me to turn from my sin. Help me to follow you. God, give me a new heart. And if you pray that prayer with sincerity, God promises that he will save you and he will welcome you into his great kingdom. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, that would be my one encouragement to you, that you would do that before you leave this place. And if you're here in the room this morning and you're a follower of Jesus already, it's a question that I want to ask you is this. Do you, do you need a fresh glimpse of this treasure this morning? Like, has your heart grown stale? Have your affections for this great treasure gone numb? Have you lost the fire that once consumed your heart for this great treasure? If that's you, then my encouragement to you would just be to gaze upon the treasure that is Jesus. Look on him and his beauty and his strength in a fresh way and find your joy in him once more this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, Father, would you help us not to be satisfied and chasing all these functional idols in our lives that we think are going to make us happy, but in the end end up leaving us empty, God. So help us not to chase these flimsy idols and these weak dreams, God. Help us not to be satisfied with mud pies in the slum when you've offered us a holiday at the sea, God. God, would you give us a renewed hunger this Christmas? for the treasure that is Christ. God, would you remind us that our joy, that our happiness, that our satisfaction is rooted not in Christmas trees or eggnog or presents or any of those good things that are reminders of your grace to us, God. But would you remind us that our joy and our happiness is actually only rooted, can only be found in you. 
I thank you, God, for your love. Thank you for sending Jesus on a rescue mission for us. It's in his incomparable name that we ask and we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.